I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Leslie Carhart. Leslie is a principal threat analyst at the Threat Operations Center at Dragos. She's recognized as a subject matter expert in cybersecurity, incident response, and digital forensics, regularly speaking at conferences and universities. She's spent the last 11 years of her 20-plus career in IT specializing in information security with a heavy focus on response to nation-state adversary attacks. Prior to Dragos, she was the incident response team lead at Motorola Solutions, performing digital forensics and incident handling services, both for enterprise and public safety customers. In 2017, Leslie was named a top woman in cybersecurity by CyberScoop News and received the Guidance Infuse Conference Women in Technology Award. In her free time, Leslie co-organizes resume and interview clinics at several cybersecurity conferences, blogs, and tweets prolifically about InfoSec and as a youth martial arts instructor. In this episode, we discuss her early mentors, mentoring herself, writing resumes, starting as a coder, organizational missions, ICS security, electronic voting, submitting CFPs, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Leslie, thanks for joining me at Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks. And now uh, we were just chatting before I hit record, but uh, you are getting ready for DerbyCon, which which by all uh, all accounts sounds like it's going to be the last DerbyCon. What are you looking yeah. forward to this year for uh, DerbyCon? Well, um, seeing a lot of people, first of all, I, it's a... It's a great place to see folks from all over the country, but I'm going to be working almost into this entire DerbyCon. I'll be running the uh, interview and resume clinic with Ms. Bat, and uh, I'll also be giving two talks. So I'm going to be I'm going to be pretty busy throughout the con, but I'm excited. It's going to be a good time, and we're going to help a lot of people. So yeah, and that's one of the things I want to dive into with you. And I, I just spoke with. Um, Jericho, his podcast episode is not up yet, but by the time yours is, should be. But we were talking a little bit about the mentoring in the community and how Besides Las Vegas is taking it upon themselves to do that. Uh, besides Austin, I did that this year to kind of help people on their um, presentation skills and how to do it because, you know, some new time people. And incidentally, just before we hit record, I was telling somebody I'm going to help them on their their resumes. They look for a new job and, and do a kind of mock interview. But uh, I think it's kind of a valuable thing. How did you kind of get started doing the resume review and, and kind of prepping people to get into the industry, but in you know more on, on that approach, I should say? I have had a really hard time throughout my life, especially my earlier life, finding mentorship. Um, I kind of really had to pull myself along and uh, figure things out for myself because ages ago, <laughs> eons ago, when I got into the field, it was, um, I, I looked for mentorship, I asked for help, and there was just none. Um, and um, uh, maybe maybe I wasn't in the pl- right place to find the right people at the time, but I kind of took it upon myself after that to not let anybody else end up in the same situation if I could avoid it. I 
I know that there's a lot of young people out there who are in a bad place economically or location wise, or just not surrounded by the right groups of people to get into security. And they're really interested in it. They're interested in, in either, you know, the more corporate side of cybersecurity or the more like hacker space, building things, breaking things space. And, um, uh, we can't leave those people behind. We need them and, uh, we, we should be giving them help when we can. You know, when you kind of look back a little bit about, you know, it, it, I've, I've had some of the same struggles too, you know, there's the, when you're kind of the first into a particular industry and there's not a lot of other guidance or, um, you know, folks to you know look up to, there's certainly people like, uh, both Rob Lee's <laughs> in the industry, <laughs> uh, who you now have the pleasure of working with Rob Emily, but you know, there, there's, there just hasn't been a lot of folks out there. Um, but you know, for those that have been, I mean, have there been particular people as you kind of had your journey that, that you can look back and say, gosh, you know, that, that was a pivotal person that really kind of helped me in my career. Yeah, it's a, my first mentor was, um, I was working in a security operations center as, as a junior, you know, second shift analyst. And there's this guy named Bagan, um, who ran our team, ran our security operations center, at least the junior analyst. And he had been a lifer at the company and, uh, gone from like manufacturing to IT to like all over the place. And he ended up running the security team and man, he was he was the best manager anybody could hope for. And I hope that as I, as I move more into management roles in the future, I can be, you know, half of the the manager and the mentor that he was, he was, uh, he went above and beyond his whole life was, was making sure that his analysts had a better life and were able to excel and move forward. Um, and, uh, unfortunately he passed away before he could retire. He was a couple of years from retirement. He pretty much worked himself to death. Um, but it was all for, all for the people that he was training and mentoring and taking care of. Um, he was always there working extra hours to help them out, make sure they didn't have to work holidays, you know, make sure that they had the training budgets they needed. Um, just truly exceptional person. Oh, wow. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. You know, and, you know, certainly as you now kind of take on more of a mentorship role with, with folks, you know, what are, I guess, some of the common themes that you are seeing in a lot of these, you know, resume reviews and mentoring sessions that you've been doing? Is there, is there something that really stands out as, as both strengths and, and possible challenges that people have, uh, as you kind of look at this, you know, kind of larger cohort of analysis uh, of, of data to ana- analyze? So if you go to my YouTube channel, I've got a video on kind of the the greatest hits of what I see all the time, you know, like the, the biggest problems that people should look for when they're reviewing their own resumes. And it, granted, I'm not a professional resume editor. That's not what I do for a living. And I highly recommend, it's probably one of my top recommendations is that anybody going towards a mid-career or later career role have a resume reviewer who does just that exclusively and they see them every year and have them touch up the resume and change the formatting to match the current styles and stuff. But what I provide is more um, looking at it from a hiring manager's perspective. Um, what, what am I not seeing as a person who's considering you for a technical role? What is not clear to me? What looks negative, um, et cetera. And uh, so that's kind of the service that we're providing. But um, yeah, I mean, people, other than just, you know, please go hire a, a professional resume editor for the spelling, grammar, stylistic stuff. If you, if you can feasibly do that, it's definitely well worth the money. Um, people don't know how to brag about themselves. Um, your resume is your time to talk about why you are excelling at your, your role, why you are the better candidate than other people who have the same skills and abilities. And, um, 
you know, the lower tiers of InfoSec are starting to get more saturated. Uh, there's more degrees in the field. There's more people entering those roles right now. And there's a lot more competition. And um, I see a lot of resumes cross my desk when I'm doing these clinics that are, um, they read like job postings for the roles that the people had previously. And that should never happen in your resume. You need to pick up your resume right now as you're listening to this podcast or open it up, open up the file and look at it and read your last couple roles and see if they read like the posting for your job on your, on your website. If they were, if they were hiring somebody to replace you, um, that, that should never happen. What you should see in there is adjectives and quantification and impact on your company, things that are positive that show that you did a better job than somebody else with the same skill set or in the same role and why, uh, why what you did was important. Um, and how much of an impact it had over how many people and uh, how much time you saved, how much money you saved, et cetera, those types of things. That's what I want to see about you is why did it matter? Why do you matter? Um, so, so sell yourself. It's, it's really hard for a lot of us because we're, you know, uh, we're introverted and we're humble and we don't like bragging about ourselves. But that's the point of a resume. Yeah, I, I find that too with a lot of the junior people that I'm, I'm kind of mentoring and coaching in the field now it's you know they'll send that resume it says you know lead incident response investigation so I'm like okay how many did you improve mean time to respond did you deal with a specific set of ransomware or malware you know put some context around it and you're right they almost seem a little hesitant about kind of bragging about it you know, throw in those positive adjectives like uh, lead efforts, the exceptional efforts and um, top performer, things like that. Um, I learned to write resumes through doing uh, performance reviews in the military and award packages and stuff. And uh, they have a very clear, concise way that you make short, concise bullets that contain that quantification and impact every single time. And uh, that's that's a really good way to express that you're, you're good at things. So. Um, yeah, so uh, definitely that's that's probably the key thing. Also thinking about the automated systems that do resume screening today. Um, I see a lot of people forgetting that those are their thing. And yeah, there's a lot of networking in our field, and that's a very, very optimal way to get a job if you can do the face-to-face -face networking and meet the right people. But you still are often going to have to upload a resume to one of those web-based HR systems. And they're doing all kinds of nasty stuff to your resume, like converting it to plain text, removing all your formatting, then searching it for keywords, searching for specific sections like education and certifications. And if you're doing wonky things with your formatting or you don't have the right keywords there, your resume is just getting dropped before a human even sees it. So. Yeah, I find that that's something too. I don't think people realize that you know, if you do go that route of having to upload it to an HR system, it is doing a lot of data analytics on it. So it's almost like you have to kind of carry uh, – two resumes when you're when you're when you're applying for a position is one is submitted to kind of get you past the automated screening and then the other one that really almost talks a little bit more about the value that you can bring when you actually talk to a hiring manager have, have you seen that kind of play out as well um, I don't really see that very often. I mean, it's it's a valid tactic. Um, but however, often those systems are just going to forward a resume on to the hiring manager. Um, I do see people targeting each resume they send out towards the position that they're applying for. So not lying, but, you know, looking at the skills that the, the posting is looking for and then making sure that they have those specific skills and experience highlighted as appropriate. 
Sure. And kind of stepping back, you know, kind of looking at your career trajectory, uh, if I did some research correctly, I mean, you started coding at a fairly young age and, and kind of maybe went a little bit more of the self-taught route to a certain degree from, from what I ascertained on it. Kind of walks through how you got started in the industry to kind of where you are today. Yeah, yeah. I did start very young. Um, grew up on a farm and uh, my dad bought a computer to do like uh, inventory. Um, so, you know, just did finances inventory. And that was very early on. That was <laughs> quite, quite, uh, quite a number of years ago, uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he brought this computer home. It cost a fortune, a long-term payment or like paying off a car or a house or something. And, um, uh, at the time it was really cool. Your, your like first and second grade math textbooks had, uh, they had computer programs in the back. They had basic programs in the back and you could, you could do basic coding on all kinds of different platforms at the time. And they'd help you learn how to code out solutions to do your math homework for better or worse. And, uh, I mean, my options at the time living in a farm kind of isolated were pull weeds, work on the farm and be, be out there in the sunshine or learn how to program on this computer. So, um, for a lack of other things to do, I went, oh, I'll go out, learn how to program this computer thing. And I, I mean, I, I enjoyed it and we couldn't afford a lot of video games. So I learned how to write my own like text-based video games and stuff. And um, when I was around uh, 14, 15, um, the, some folks noticed that I was a pretty good programmer. I got hired on as a SQL developer for a uh, web firm. And uh, that was back in the <laughs> this era when you could do that kind of thing. <laughs> when that was the booming industry. And uh, so I got hired on to do that really early on and got involved in the uh, Chicago land hacker community um, as a product. Oh, wow. And, and how are things now at Dragos? I did have the opportunity to have Rob Emily on uh, not too long ago, but it still, still seems like a very growing startup and you seem kind of like an uh, exciting addition to it. Oh um, man, I was like employee number 20 something and now we're up to like 150 people. Um, it's, it's crazy how much we've grown and you know, that changes an organization a lot. Hopefully it doesn't change our culture, but I mean, it, it, it definitely changes the scope of what you're doing and, and how many people you have working on projects and things. So that's kind of exciting. Um, I think that's, that's one of the things I always find interesting, particularly as you go from, you know, you were at a fairly large enterprise environment with, with, I would assume with Motorola being a, a very large publicly traded company to mm -hmm. a startup, how, you know, what are the cultural similarities that you look for between two different size organizations and where do they really differ? Um, you know, this seems idealistic, but the thing that I'm looking for in an organization is its mission. Um, that's in every, every person who works for a company. I rail on this when I teach our classes on industrial cybersecurity. You should know what the mission statement of your company is, and your company should have one. Um, and in, in Drago, that's uh, safeguarding civilization. Um, it's a very simple mission, and uh, it, it adapts well to changing technologies over time. And everybody should know what the mission of their company is. And we don't always have that luxury because we all have to have jobs to eat and pay for our, our family's care and stuff and, our, and uh, you know, a roof over our heads. But if you have that luxury in cybersecurity, think about what your organization's ultimate goal is and what you're contributing to society. Um, so that's, that's what I look for first. But culturally, I mean... There are different problems working for a large company and a small company. And I wouldn't say that one is inherently better than the other. Um, they both have unique challenges that they face every day. Smaller organizations, yes, they're a lot more flexible, but you're building up a lot of policies and procedures. Some of them are in place, and that can cause conflicts and confusion. 
And then in a larger organization, there's there's many layers of bureaucracy. And uh, yes, you've got very established budgets and policies and things, and that can make facilitating facilitating work and projects easier. But it can also make them harder because it's such a long process to make change. So they're both they're both good. It's just it, you just have to think about what you're getting into and understand the challenges you're going to face. Oh, absolutely. And so now with your current role, you know you you're working with. You know, something we hear a lot about, but I don't think a lot of folks, maybe in cyber, even the public sector, really understand you know, when we talk about industrial control systems, SCADA, you know, really that infrastructure type of support. What are some of the things that you guys are kind of seeing now or working on that I think people are not necessarily aware of? So um, I like to talk about something I call uh, ICS butts. <laughs> ICS butts. And we needed to do a talk with that title just because it's funny. But okay, so um, there's this sense of exceptionalism with with industrial control systems and in, in cybersecurity. Um, there's a there's a temptation to make these generalizations in cybersecurity, like patch every system, scan your systems for vulnerabilities every year. You know these general rules that we just throw out there all the time repeatedly as cybersecurity professionals. But then the people who have been in it a while are like, oh, but don't do that to industrial systems because they're too sensitive, they can't be patched, et cetera, et cetera. And in a lot of cases, that's true. Um, there's a lot of reasons why uh, mission comes first in industrial um, before cybersecurity. Uh, you're worried about uh, you know, availability, not confidentiality in a lot of those cases. And uh, however, just passing those off as the exception that proves the rule and just ignoring it is is a really bad tactic. So we're we're in a, a, a interesting space where we're facing a lot of challenges that nobody's figured out how to manage before. Um, so in industrial, um, you're dealing with a lot of legacy systems um, because the life cycle is much, much longer for these systems. Like you're talking about 20 or 30 years instead of five to 10 years for computer systems. And it's not as simple as I go out and buy a new Windows 10 computer and plug it in because most of the time those systems are sold as supported packages by a vendor and the software will only run on one operating system at one patch level. And those are the only systems that can interface with the lower level devices like the PLCs, you know, the, the more simplistic serial devices. So um, there's a lot of reasons why, yeah, you, you can't necessarily patch. You can't necessarily run active scans because the lower... Uh, level systems are more sensitive to not knowing how to handle things like an unopened TCP connection, et cetera, um, and that can freeze them up. So there's all these challenges that we face, but the answer is not let's ignore it because it's hard and we can't touch it. The answer is build good relationships between IT, cybersecurity, and the operational technology or the OT teams. And then figure out how to, how to tackle these problems, how to create an acceptable level of security. So sometimes that means going back in the time with your security tools. It means like doing passive mon entirely passive monitoring and uh, vulnerability assessment instead of having active scanning going on, which we're used to. Or not having the ability to install EDR because we can't install things on the older computers um, or the embedded computers. And figuring out other ways to detect the same malware. So... Yeah, we're right in the thick of trying to figure out all the things that we need to do in modern cybersecurity to protect against both commodity and advanced threats, whether they're inside or external, in in a way that's acceptable and safe in industrial environments, which, which is really cool. And that's like everything from security monitoring to digital forensics incident response and uh, red teaming. So 
it's fun. It also seems that they're, they're just kind of along those themes of what you're talking about. They're kind of some of the core fundamentals. You know, when we talk about the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of, of a system, a particularly a critical system, that there, there are some issues with potential availability. You know, I always kind of, you know, talk to folks, uh, again, like Jericho or um, Space Rogue in the past that said, well, look, you know, there's a lot of other things that can happen in industrial control systems, particularly around the power grid, that these are just inherently you know, like you said, kind of legacy systems. They might not have been updated in 30 years that the probability of an event happening could be due to their own kind of flaws in their, well, sort of say vulnerabilities in their design rather than necessarily a nation state actor coming in and turning the lights out. So a couple things to understand about industrial systems. So first of all, there's a lot of security by obscurity protecting the systems because it takes a long time to understand how these systems are configured. And that's not just because programming PLCs is tricky. It's because each system is designed differently. It has different components from, with different revisions of software. And also, the, the other thing to consider is that a lot of them have physical controls as well. People who do OT aren't dumb. They understand consequences. They understand what their worst day is. They understand that they care about somebody being killed or maimed or the environment being polluted or their system blowing up and having to be replaced. They care about consequences and they understand what those consequences are. So they might not always care what causes a consequence. Um, they, they care if the thing explodes and if they have a way to mitigate it exploding, they're going to install that. And that can be something entirely physical, like a pressure valve or, you know, you know, a completely separate non-digital system that shuts things off if there's a unsafe condition. So a lot of those exist in those environments as well. So if you're a bad guy and you're targeting one of those systems, it's not as simple as I get in and I start hitting buttons. Like, yeah, that can have a negative effect. We don't know. We don't want to start doing it out of the blue. But to be an adversary, an advanced adversary who wants to create a specific effect on a system, that's like a year of sitting there with the system quietly with, with access to the system and doing reconnaissance and understanding how it functions, understanding what physical safety controls there are in place and what will actually cause an impact. Because the operators have already thought about a lot of bad things that can go wrong and they've built in mitigations. Um, and they sometimes they're, they're digital systems like, uh, like safety systems, like uh, SIS systems. And, uh, um, sometimes they are physical controls that are also preventing negative consequences on the system. So, um, but ultimately what that means is uh, operators care about consequences. So we as cybersecurity people care about security stuff. We care about a system being infected with malware. We care about somebody getting on the domain controller and tampering with it, creating accounts, you know, dumping hashes, et cetera. What they care about is the system killing somebody. And if their system can operate without any negative consequences that they care about and completely infected with Configure, and mitigating Configure is going to involve like two days of downtime at millions and millions of dollars, they do not care that the system's infected with Configure, and that's okay. Yeah, and that actually I'm sort of thinking about too is like some of the things with the IoT devices. You know, there's there's a lot of things that could have vulnerabilities in them uh, that can be nuisances from a DDoS attack, but there are ones that could have you know life altering consequences, particularly ones in the medical or traffic control things like that. Um, you know, when you kind of look at the different IoT devices as those are kind of being widespread use, let's say, or a much more adapted use or a, 
at a greater greater level in enterprise environments. What are some of the risks that you see with with those types of devices compared to, like, say, industrial control? I mean, you've got to look at both directions. How can they be used to tamper with your systems, and how can they be leveraged to access other things? Um, Again, it all comes back to consequences. When you're talking about devices that have a physical impact on the world, um, whether that's ICS, whether that's IoT, et cetera, um, we've got to think about consequences that they can impact. And we really need to get better at risk and consequence modeling as cybersecurity pros. Um, we spend so much time in a vacuum doing threat hunting and, and uh, analysis and monitoring based on we want to look for worms or we want to look for APT actors on the domain controller. And that's okay. But again, we should be thinking about the consequences that we care about. And in business, they're not necessarily kinetic things. They could be our website is compromised and uh, it's, it's, uh, it contains malware or it's, it's altered to say something negative about a group of people. Um, or it could be a financial impact, et cetera. Um, and we should be thinking more about those consequences, especially as we're dealing more with IoT and smart devices. Um, okay, so you've got a bunch of thermostats in your data center. What happens if somebody turns them all to 90 degrees? Um, is there any kind of physical control that's going to keep your systems from overheating? Um, are you going to get an alarm, et cetera? What other things failing in your data center could cause that, that same temperature increase? Um, let's go back down the line and think about, well, what if a generator fails? Uh, what if our HVAC units start failing? What could cause them to fail? Um, and that's not always going to be cyber things, but we should be thinking about those chains of, of uh, situations that cause consequences we care about that, that helps us identify better what devices we care about in the IoT and the smart device space. Sure. Now, you know, one of the more, I would say, charged subjects uh, around uh, the internet and new, newly connected devices, certainly around voting machines and to one degree that aspect of tampering with elections. But then there's also other issues where there's potential potential na- nation state actors, as I think most people have agreed now, that have had some attempts, possibly successful, getting the systems to influence elections in the U.S. and, and possible other areas. You know, what are the risks that we're seeing now, you know, kind of going into a new election season with a variety of different things, let's just say in a big air quote, that either track or contribute or influence folks when it comes to uh, voting and our electric uh, elect- <laughs> electoral system? Um, I think in a lot of ways, the uncertainty is more frightening than the tampering. Um, creating a level of uncertainty with our electoral system is, is, has potentially horrifying consequences for our, our democracy or republic, whichever you choose to fight over the terminology for, um, the, the fact that you could convince a entire nation that their election has been modified by simply putting malware on a simple election system in a sensitive district, you don't necessarily have to change any votes to cause mayhem and loss of confidence in the government there. Um, you could, you know, just a strategic tampering with a couple votes in one district will cause everybody else with electronic voting machines to wonder if their, their vote was actually tallied properly. So, um, there, there's a lot of ways to, to tamper with our, our free elections and our right to, to influence our political representation that don't involve getting into to 20 different electoral districts and, and modifying a bunch of votes. 
Um, so there's a there's a lot of potential for bad things to happen there. I'm very, very much opposed to electronic voting systems that don't have uh, solid uh, additional paper ballots that are, that are uh, auditable. I'm, it's, a, it's a very distressing problem, and I'm very unhappy to see uh, people not taking this as a serious concern. Yeah, and what I mean, what are some of the things that you know? I always feel that there's there has been, I wouldn't say necessarily stand standoff, but there's always been a, a maybe a slight disconnect between folks in cybersecurity and the government, particularly on the policymaker side, where they're quick to either introduce a new regulation, new standards, something that doesn't have community involvement. You know, how as we as professionals, how can we help get ourselves more involved with that process so we kind of have a seat at the table? There really is a lot in the industrial space. There's a lot of interfacing between um, the uh, elected officials, Congress people, congressional staffers, and the people working in the, the um, industrial cybersecurity space, uh, like critical infrastructure, power, water, et cetera. Um, there, there is a lot of discussions there. And we're, we're on the Hill all the time. We have people like Rob who are up there all the time. Uh, representing our organization and our findings and our threat intelligence, et cetera. Um, and we do a lot of educational outreach for, for folks too uh, across the board, whether it's journalism or Congress, et cetera, uh, elected officials and a municipal level. Um, and, and there is a lot of interaction there. Um, I'd say that the temptation is being reactive um, to incidents, uh, or, or potential threats, overly reactive, instead of being proactive. Um, there is a potential to over-legislate in cybersecurity um, to a point where people can't do what they need to do. So let me explain that a little bit more. Um, so imagine that you have a, a compromise of a water treatment facility, and uh, it's high profile, it makes the news, um, everybody's concerned that their water's been tampered with. and there's going to be a temptation for people to call their Congress people right away and say, okay, make a law that makes them all have better cybersecurity. So people are going to sit down and create a bill that legislates that they all have to have EDR, they all have to have Windows 10, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what's actually happening at those water treatment plants? Most municipal water treatment plants have like one IT person. If they're very, very, very fortunate, they have one dedicated security person. Um, they're, they're small organizations and they don't have a lot of funding. They don't have a lot of resources. What happens when they get told they have to upgrade every computer to Windows 10? Well, they stop doing all the rest of the security monitoring that they're doing. Um, they stop looking at their antivirus logs. They stop their migration to a new antivirus. Um, they stop talking to third-party IDS providers if they're doing that. So there are ways to do legislation right. And a lot of them involve providing funding to organizations that need it to do cybersecurity, providing them education and staffing and uh, good threat intelligence, things like that. And there is a lot of that happening. But there's always that risk of over-legislating when people don't have the resources to do what they've been instructed to do. Yeah, it definitely is that uh, educational component, but really on both sides to understand you know, where I think where the policymakers are coming at to protect a constituent base, as well as them understanding what we're seeing in, in the wild. It almost seems like the, the, that it just still, it still comes down to good kind of communications. With one of the things that I, I noticed, too, that you've, you've done in the, in the past, too, is certainly being more involved in the community, both from uh, as we talked earlier about doing some of the mentorships, but also with you know, doing call for paper reviews. And this has been kind of an interesting topic that I've been kind of diving into with folks uh, because I find it kind of interesting. It's, it's, um, 
you know, particularly this time of year where there's, you know, multiple conferences go back to back and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of CFPs that are out there. But one of the things you posted about it a little over a year ago is about kind of the takeaways from reviewing 600 plus call for papers. Could you kind of just, you know, maybe kind of get the highlights of that so people can understand, you know, where you were coming from in that and what that process looks like both as a reviewer, um, for you to take your personal time, uh, to do that, but also some of the things that you saw as, you know, whether it be repeat offenders or things that really stuck out as being actually beneficial. Yeah, so I do CFP reviews for a few different conferences, and it's a lot of fun because I get to see like where people are, re- their research is, what they're studying, their interesting ideas about things they'd like to pursue further. I mean, it's a really fun gig, but it is a lot of work, especially for the larger conferences. And basically what it usually ends up being is a massive spreadsheet or Google Doc um, of, of people's submissions. So um, usually they're blind. Usually I can't see who submitted them. Um, and I'll see like a title of the talk, a uh, synopsis, an outline, um, and whether they've given the talk somewhere else before. And um, so I can talk a little bit about the the top things that get people, I guess. Um, and again, I do have a long blog about this. It goes into it in more detail. But um, understand that I'm reading, you know, 400 to 600 different submissions. So um, there, there's people who submit stuff that haven't even been spell checked. Um, they don't put proper line breaks in or they truncate things. Um, and, you know, when you're reading hundreds and hundreds of submissions, that makes the reviewer's life really, really hard. So do try to have somebody else put a second set of eyes on your submission. And I'm not going to ding somebody just because they use lowercase on a word or something and they're not supposed to, but, um, just try to make them readable. Um, there's also the people who get way too verbose or not verbose enough like there's a happy medium and usually there's some guidelines in the in the cfp submission form um but if it's a 20 page submission and it's all gotten mashed together because you copied it out of powerpoint outlines um that that can be really really difficult to read and then there's also like the one sentence submissions where i just i it yeah that sounds cool have you actually done any research into it is this something you've pursued i don't know anything about what you've done um, it frustrates me when people break blind reviews too. Um, a lot of times when you copy out your outline, it has the, who am I? If you just copy it from PowerPoint, I don't want to know who you are. I don't want to be in any way biased by knowing that. Um, and it's really frustrating when you put detailed enough information about you into your outline or your synopsis that I know immediately who you are. It's almost a reason that I'll disqualify people because Again, I want to give everybody a fair chance. And and you saying, oh, I'm the director of cybersecurity at this major company, this Fortune 10. Like, what are you trying to convey there? Why are you breaking a blind review to, to tell me that? Um, it's It seems a little dishonest. Um, there's always trendy topics of every year. And you should understand if you're talking about a trendy topic. Like last year when I wrote that blog, it was MITRE ATT&CK. Everything was MITRE ATT&CK. There's like 150 submissions on MITRE ATT&CK. And um, if you're writing on one of those really trendy topics, like this year containers were a big one, um, AWS. Um, if you're talking about one of those hot new topics, um, understand that you're competing with a lot of other people, especially for a large conference. So you're really going to need to make your presentation stand out with a good hook and a good technical details, a good premise, maybe some details about your research or your hypothesis. Um, you need to sell yourself a bunch above a bunch of other people. So those are just a few initial shots, thoughts about that. Um, 
you can definitely check out my blog on my on my site and uh, I've got a lot more thoughts about what works and what doesn't work. Sure. And I'll be careful about not to self-promote any of my own submissions. But one of the things that I've seen that I've been trying to submit lately, too, is a little, a little bit of stuff that have been less technical and more on the, say, whether the human aspect of it, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be how to do stuff in business, how to communicate better, uh, just wide ranging topics about the things, some of the soft skills and other things. But so, they, they haven't yeah. been as well received as I thought they might be. But I, I just, you know, and they were all blind submissions. But I'm always curious mm-hmm. as from reviewers, are you seeing more of that in as if they're an, an interest in seeing stuff like that? So that's a tricky question. That's a really interesting problem to tackle right now because we are getting more soft skills submissions. And I'm a big fan of soft skills in security. There's a lot of reasons people need to learn to present and talk better. There's reasons why people need to be able to uh, associate with management better and other teams. There's a lot of reasons why people need to understand better project management um, and, and you know, frameworks for doing secure development. So there's a lot of reasons why soft skills talks are really good. But there have been 1 million submissions on, I want to build a good team with good people. Um, There have been 1 million submissions on how to um, apply to an InfoSecCon or how to apply for a job. If you're going to do that, that's awesome. And we can always use a new perspective on that, but make sure you're conveying that you're bringing a new perspective to it. Because, I mean, just do the basic like security tube or YouTube search and see how many people have talked about the same topic. You're going to need to convey that you have a new take on this. It's going to not necessarily teach something new, but maybe teach it in a different way and reach a different audience. Make sure there's a good hook in there. Make sure that you are expressing why this is this is interesting to people who can go on Security Tube right now and look at a hundred topics on the same, a hundred talks on the same topic. Um, so it's not it's not that those talks are bad, but again, it's just like the popular technical topics. Um, understand that there's a lot of competition and understand that there's a lot of talks out there already. So. That's not necessarily bad, but try to bring a new take to it. Very and don't just be like, I, and it, I've seen submissions in the last year that were like two sentences. And it's, I, I will teach you about how to build a good security operations team and, or train a good security operations team. And it's like, you've got to give me more than that. Yeah, definitely. It's uh there's a lot of nuance to it. You know, and with that too, there, there's certainly a lot of uh, kind of some of the non-technical things, but you know, now that you've kind of, you know, emerged in this field and continue to progress, it certainly is getting more management roles and having to look more at the business side. What are some of the kind of non-industry or non-technical stuff that you try to consume to either continue your growth or complement other areas of your technical aptitude? So I basically did the PMP this year. <laughs> I didn't take the cert. I might do it, but you have to do like on the job training for it. So it's, it's tricky, but I did the coursework, basically. I did a bunch of courses on team dynamics, which were really helpful, and on you know personality types, um, working with different groups of people and different personalities in business. Um, also understanding what makes teams fail. Uh, that's really important. Uh, time management and you know building good project plans. Uh, so I've done a lot of course, coursework recently in that, both willing and unwilling. Um, and it's been really, really helpful to to being a better team leader and understanding why things work and why things don't work in business. And I think the most important skill is understanding how to deal with risk. Um, you really need to understand risk management 
very, very well as, as a cybersecurity professional who's dealing with more management level stuff because people don't care. Again, they care about consequences. They don't care about malware. They care about consequences. And if those are clearly defined financial consequences, that's a lot easier for a business to stomach than, oh, we need to patch these computers because they might have a worm spread on them. Yeah, it's tough. Look, and I'm as guilty as anybody else for for using the word cyber as much as I can to either self promote or yeah. kind of growth and industry. But it's almost like if we said, "Hey, you know, the annual RSA Risk Management and Project Management Conference is happening in San Francisco." I don't think we would get enough attendance. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it tends to be you know kind of these areas that that I see underdeveloped. Um, skills or even discussion points with inside the industry, you know, is, are there ways to build more of that in to, you know, whether it be through organizations like SANS or others where we really say, Hey, you know, we, this is an area where we need focus. I mean, it's not, it's not the fun stuff. The fun stuff is sitting in front of a computer and, you know, tearing apart a piece of malware or breaking into a system, et cetera. That's, that's the really cool, sexy stuff. But um, if you want to impact business, if you want to get to a level where you want to impact business, you've got to play the game. And it's a fun game sometimes, figuring out how to change people's minds about security, um, whether that's employees or management, leadership, executives, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's a tough game and you need a lot of background knowledge to do it. Um, so you need to understand that it's, you need to decide if that's something you want to do as a career path. Um, whether you want to stay technical or you want to get into more of a uh, business uh, influence position. Yeah, it's almost funny. I've always said, you know, you, you almost have to, if, if you're really good at social engineering, you'll probably do better in management, uh, particularly when you're having to deal with the board and trying to basically influence people into doing things even in their best interest or, or collectively as a group. I agree. And a good, a good component, a very important component of social engineering is under, understanding people's motivations and needs. Um, and that's that consequence stuff we're talking about. It's like understand what motivates them, understand which what will influence their opinion and what they care about. Definitely. So, Leslie, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, what are some of the things that you're working on right now that people can uh, can certainly find? I'll put all the links to this to where you are in the show notes. But love to hear what some of the you know stuff you'll be working on for the rest of the year. So um, my talk at DerbyCon will be an IT OT convergence. So it's late in the day, so do come stop by if you can. Um, I'm also doing a panel on Friday uh, with a number of great InfoSec pundits about uh, user security awareness and training users. Um, so definitely, if you can make either of those talks, otherwise they'll be posted after the conference. Um, I'm going to be at DefendCon, um, running their interview resume clinic with Ms. Bad again. Um, that'll be in Seattle in a few weeks. Um, and uh, after that, I'm moving. So I, I'm taking a little break from cons for a while while I do that. But um, yeah, uh, later on in the year, I haven't really worked out my con schedule yet. But my ongoing research right now is uh, building out better digital forensics and incident response planning and procedures for industrial systems, especially lower level devices. I've been working a lot with um, how we do forensics in, in unsafe, uh, inaccessible uh, environments with uh, industrial systems, especially things like serial devices. So uh, I've been doing a lot of research into that, and hopefully I can have the opportunity to speak about that later in the year. 
Very cool. And then uh, you have a very popular Twitter handle of hacks the number four pancakes. How did I'm always curious? How did you know everybody kind of picks their own handle? Is that like a an old school hacker handle or where, where did? Uh... No, that's not my old school <laughs> hacker handle, and I'm not going to admit on this pad, podcast what my old school like uh, BBS handle was. Nice, because uh, you might know somebody might have known me. Um, but uh, no, hacks for pancakes was just a little joke about all the volunteer work I do for conferences because. Um, I guess I could be like speaking at RSA in Black Hat and like actually making the money and stuff. But no, I do free clinics two days at DerbyCon, um, which is fun and it's worthwhile and I love it. And I get paid in food. So that's awesome. Um, it's just there's different ways to contribute to the InfoSec community. And I picked the one that ends up with food. Yeah, I, t- I took more of the scotch and whiskey route. So I think I have for somebody I was mentoring. Yeah, he's got, got my uh, Talisker tenure sitting right here. It's unopened, but for helping him with his resume. So yeah, you have to find little uh, your own little rewards out of the system. Yes. And sometimes it's just that, that message somebody sends you a year later that's like, hey, you helped me get a job. Like that that makes my day when I get those. Oh, man. Like when I when I when somebody messaged me that I helped them with their SANS test or their you know, their hiring process or their project or something, man, that's, that's the best, that's the best feeling. Love it. Well, I'll be sure to put where people can find you on the interwebs, uh, in the show notes, but again, thank you so much for taking the time today. I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on cybersecurity interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.